And now a message from our sponsor. Hey everybody, it's Bootleg Captain, Captain Bootlegs here. Yeah. If you're like me, I bet you're enjoying this Toys, Toys on, on Tap, Tap podcast. Yeah, I am enjoying it, it's very nice. But did you know you can enjoy it more just by joining that Patreon? Oh, I did not know that. There are so many cool perks available on the Patreon for you. There's and also and Wow, that's really a lot of stuff if you ask Bootleg Captain. Captain I don't bootleg. understand. There were noises I couldn't hear with the person. So join today to support Toys on Tap podcast and Bootleg Art Toys. But if you're not in a position to join the Patreon, head on over to Apple iTunes and review and subscribe. That helps out the channel as well. Okay, I'll go rate it, I guess. And remember, listen to Toys, Toys on, on Tap. Captain Bootleg, the bootleg captain sent you. Why does he keep referring to himself in the third Can person? I stop with the stupid voice now? I'm not sure why you made me want to sound like a pirate. Oh, so that was a fake voice. Oh, yucko! I didn't realize it was just pretend voice. Oh, okay. Part six of Toys on Tap, understanding bootlegs with Yo-Yo Dine in the freaking house. Good afternoon. This one's more conversational, less information. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so, man, because I, uh, you know, I'm in the habit of, I don't normally listen to myself when I do interviews, but with this, I was in the habit of listening to my the previous episode so that if there was anything that I wanted to mention at the beginning of the next one, I could do that. Right. Yeah. And this last one was like, fuck, I just talked at you for two hours. Didn't I? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Luckily I got real good at like editing along the way. Usually when I edit, I'm like, I'll listen to it. I'll edit. I'll listen to it again. And then one last time of listening, but for two and a half hours, like I can't, I can't do that. Yeah. So we did yeah. it. And then the, this last week, the release of not only that, but uh, uh, Toby Philpot, the guy, one of the guys that played Job of the Hut. So that was cool. Back to back. How'd that go? I didn't. Uh, I haven't had a chance to listen to it quite yet today. You, um, you should. He he is also in Dark Crystal, and he makes the noise of one of the Skeksis, and it's just oh. hearing him talk about how he worked side by side and in the armpit of Jim Henson and and how he didn't even know that Jabba would lick Leia's face and how hard it was to eat the frog as Jabba. And it's just, it was a cool conversation. Wow, yeah, I'm definitely gonna, definitely gonna get to that uh, tonight. I guess everybody should know that we're recording this like, you know, just mere hours after you've released this week's episode. So yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so, and that time was taken up from me listening to myself uh, talk at you. And I was like, <laughs> wow, this is, yeah. Uh, anyway. So I think um, that this is a good, what we're going to start it this way. Out of understanding bootlegs, I need a, a one sentence, sum up the last five episodes well last four don't include the one about the around the world stuff so one sentence to sum it up and then uh, i have questions for you one sentence yeah. um uh how about a short paragraph <laughs> i'll give you two uh, sentences <laughs> okay uh uh ultimately uh this series was about uh, the culture of copying and how that's regarded in different circumstances uh, in the toy space, sort of around the world. I think that might be the best. That's pretty good for a sentence. Solid. So here's yeah. the question. If I am just jumping into the toy scene, 
and I am starting to either produce my own um, ideas or I'm starting to recreate or build up others or do those types of things. Why mm -hmm. is it important that I understand the culture of copying that surrounds bootlegs? I, I don't necessarily know that it, it's cr mission critical to understand. I just think that um, if you understand the history of any, like this is the different, basically if we were looking at this like from an art historian point of view, and historical yeah. point of view, and we were saying, so what is the art history of bootleg toys? The thing about that is that the art history of bootleg toys is kind of all of the stuff that my research that I shared with you through my research um, through all like this, the five previous episodes, like you can't isolate, you know, sort of what we can consider maybe to be like North American and European, like bootleg art toys from all of the other sort of cultural stuff that we've talked about, whether that's the corporate practice of copying and prohibition, whether that's sort of the international sort of like how more like other cultures and other nations regard copying, which is what we talked about last week. Like all of that stuff plays into this larger history of what we consider to be sort of like bootleg art toys, I think, right? Like it's, there's, there, it's interconnected in such a way that it's like, we're also moving down the river together. And these are the different cultural eddies and currents that that like the culture of copying through toys has sort of like moved through. And I think that any artist interested in any particular medium other than learning the actual craft of the medium, like the actual sort of material conditions that like can bring about different results in your work, et cetera, I think understanding the history of that stuff is critically important as well. And so for me, the idea of understanding this was to say, well, let's understand the basic assumption. Let's understand that everything is sort of in culture is predicated on the act of copying in some way. And how do different people deal with that in different sort of different cultural currents? And I feel like understanding that more as an individual artist sort of prepares you to have conversations with people who may not be familiar with the work, but may be familiar with one of those other cultural currents as okay. well. Right. So it, it becomes a way, I think, to sort of learn about the history of these things. And I mean, obviously, you know, I've sort of given everybody a crash course in a lot of different sort of facets of this. But I just, I personally think that like thinking critically about what we do and where it comes from and the, the histories and those legacies of things is kind of what I view as my part of my responsibility. One of being a scholar for obvious reasons, because I'm being a scholar, but two of being an artist, because those things even in my own life are pretty interconnected, right? Like I make this stuff, but I'm thinking and writing about this stuff and, you know, doing research and, you know, doing this podcast with you. And so... I view that all to be part of the same spectrum. Yeah, so um, yeah, that's what I would say. I, I, I would say that like understanding like what a bootleg is, I mean, and and like sort of where it's situated in culture and how that, how it's situated in culture differently 
allows you to sort of understand the cultural conditions of your own work better, right? Yeah. I'm working within the space. This is the kind of thing. This is what I can expect, you know, versus like, you know, the difference between like what we do and what like, you know, sort of, for example, say like Mexican street merchants do with bootleg toys are very different things, but they're still articulations of a like phenomenon, which is, which is sort of like, drawing from what we consider to be collective cultural ownership and then putting something back into that space. I think that it was a good, it was cool because I like looking at those episodes, we see art in a different fashion, which has caused me to want to collect a couple pieces, which I'm not a collector, but this has caused me to, um, I found two Mexican bootleg pieces that I wanted to collect. So I reached out to them and they're on their way. So I'm excited about that um and they're big i just like what's crazy is like they go big or go home they their their pieces are so massive well blow molding plastics generally works better when it's larger yeah so it's in the, the same way that kind of yeah yeah so i it, that makes sense because that's like 12 to 16 inches it's massive yeah and then the, and even like blow molded like i, I talked briefly about gay toys uh-huh. last week at one point and they did like blow molded um like knockoff like space toys and stuff around the star wars era and like again they're kind of of a similar size to your blow molded he-man right like you don't see a lot of smaller blow blow molded stuff because it's just more difficult to work with yeah um you go under a certain scale and you switch over to injection molding because it's more efficient right yeah yeah so here is the question that I think I want to talk about or talk to you about when we think about the history um, of knockoffs and bootlegs and how it goes through culture. And then we see through the different, um, the different cultures around the world and how they pursue it and how they do copying and bootlegs and all those things. And then we have a piece um, that comes from Sucklord that at behind every piece, his hand or he is there. So what, mm-hmm. what are the two cultural dynamics that we have at play here between bootlegging and then knockoff toys or indie toys as art? What are the two different dynamics that are happening here? Oh, well, oh, that's, yeah, that's an interesting question. And I think it's, it's, it's sort of a challenge for me to tease out because you're basically having to ask yourself self questions about what are the underlying motivations of both the consumers in each of those markets and their makers, right? Um, And and so I would say that it was something like the Mexican bootleg toys, um, you know, now that, because I think that like adult collectors collecting collecting Mexican bootlegs um, is again, a relatively new phenomenon within the past 10 years. Um, you know, historically. And so you have to regard that as thinking about what the market is and what the motive, like the motivation of anyone working within a marketplace is to like supply, create, you know, give a supply to something that's in demand. So in that case, I think it's, it's interesting because they're just sort of like cheaply made toys that were probably sold to mostly to children. Um, You know, and the motivation behind them is generate, you want to generate a living as someone who's creating these objects 
and selling them in the marketplace and then children play with them. Um, whereas with the, the suck lord, there's a different kind of expression happening, right? Um, although, and maybe a different kind of motivation, although, you know, the art world's motivation, even though we can sort of ascribe a higher sort of calling to it, it's still ultimately the circulation of capital. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, an artist makes a thing, the, the collector buys it, whether that's a Rembrandt or a gay empire figure, they both sort of are functionally in that exchange, sort of working the same way as like a commodity. Um, so it's hard to say because there are so many similarities. It's like basically saying creating work for a different market, ultimately. One that's still sort of, you know, because we talked about the like Mexican bootlegs and their the the sort of the contemporary like remixing that's happening in those figures, which is not unlike the remixing that is happening in in the art bootleg toy scene in sort of in North America, Europe, and I guess also parts of South America is where some of those artists are from. Um, so yeah, I mean, knocking off a toy is sort of a different practice of copying at scale for profit, whereas creating an art toy it might have a different expressive intention. And perhaps as a smaller run and more of a kind of unique and discrete object because the market is smaller. Mm, Okay. Yeah, maybe. I mean, unless, and then unless we like start veering into some of those like sort of corporate mashups, in which case the market is oddly because it's so similar to some of the stuff in the bootleg scene, but the market for that stuff is just less niche and more sort of above board. Yeah. And what's weird I, I find this weird is the scene, the bootleg scene or knockoff toy scene, whatever you feel like you'd like to call it, is morphing and changing in like everyone takes a piece, right? And they find their little piece and they build it however they want. Um, but we interrupted this broadcast of Toys on Top to bring you this. Meanwhile, the galaxy of bootleg treasures. DOV2, we have an engine failure. We almost crash land on DKE to a planet. Oh my, we're doomed. Wait, salvation. Hooray, we've saved DOV2. Limited edition custom artist made action figures and DKE toys. Check out www.dkatoys.com for a full catalog. Hooray for custom action figures. DKE. Like one of the things I've been doing more and more is working with musicians to get a figure out of their of them. And yeah, it's where it's this weird middle ground of something that is, as Nekusatsu said, uh, she said that it's like it feels fringe or like almost like this uh, dark, seedy thing. But it's where that's now mixing with corporate America. And I'm now making these toys and they're no longer knockoffs but like customs and they're made out of other figures and it's a weird blend now yeah i would say and one of the things is that you're kind of with most of these artists i imagine that you are working um on something that could best be called an oral contract that is some sort of like like simplified licensing agreement i will make a figure in your likeness for you in exchange for dot 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 right like which is kind of a licensing agreement that you're dealing with. So you're technically in this, like working within a licensed space, like a space where terms are defined vis-a-vis some kind of contractual discussion 
Um, and yet still that sort of frames. This is why increasingly I think indie toy makers starts making a whole lot more sense. Um, but it's the thing about being more exclusive with terminology, like I said, is that it, it like way back in the first episode um, is that the more inclusive you are with terminology, the less specific it is. And the more specific you are with terminology, the less inclusive it is. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, like, do we start, like, I know that one of the reasons why a lot of, like, bootleg toy artists call themselves bootleg toy artists is because they want to distinguish themselves from other kind of both independently and corporately produced toys, uh, such as Sophobi, for example, because that's generally when we talk about Sophobi, you're starting to step, or other, like, kind of similar objects, you're starting to step into what would be called a designer toy, mm -hmm. right? Rather than, rather than quote unquote. I mean, although even, even within that space, designer toy and art toy are terms that get thrown around interchangeably with no real regard for the distinguishing features of what makes what, what. So, um, you know, if we come all the way back around to this, yeah, I, I think that's still a lesson is like, do we need to sort out the sort of the nomenclature i wouldn't say necessarily that a community needs to wholly sort that stuff out and that it will because generally what happens is like critics and historians are the people who sort of do those things and then and then apply terminology after the fact that's generally how this stuff works so yeah. you know i think that like we're just in a point in culture where we've sort of caught up to ourselves in that way so we're reflecting on it as it's happening um uh, so here's the question that I start to, some of these questions are being, are stemming from, uh, so this morning, uh, as I'm like finishing up at the gym, I'm on Instagram doing whatever. And I come across Jason Freeney. He does mighty max stuff. Mighty max. Uh, not mighty max. Uh, why can't I come up with that max? some designer thing he makes the the dissected figures where it's like a lego figure and half of it's cut open yeah i don't remember what he does it for but he goes under gummy fetus that's his thing um and he uh started this new instagram account and on it he posted a picture that had toys or these types of designer toys from him uh frank kozik lab or a um, cause, man, there were so many of them. It was just a list of them. And it then it went under, underneath it said, the history of toy, like plastic toys. And I think that even in media, those are being mixed up because what we would consider plastic toys as a kid or what we would consider plastic toys, like culturally, I don't think that that's what cause is creating. I think he's creating a different style, correct? Well, <clears throat> it depends on who he's working with and what what the circumstances of said quote unquote toy are. I mean, he worked with Medicom in the early days, making like Kubricks of some of the original figures that he did were Kubricks, uh -huh. which are you know which came with little playsets of bus shelters with like his with his sort of like bus shelter billboard hacking art like on the sides and stuff. Yeah. It's certainly it's certainly a toy. It's also a collectible, right? And I always. Like, 
this is the thing this is this is that thing where it's like again the term toy has origins in um like the adult collecting of miniature objects that were for decorative display. So they had a decorative or quote votive function, right? A votive candle, for example, for those who are always like, what's a votive candle versus a regular candle? The yeah. votive function of a votive candle is for decoration. And you don't necessarily want to use that candle because if it's a votive candle, it's probably made of a cheaper, shittier wax. It looks nice, but it's going to burn horribly and like burn your house down or something. Um, but Toys have that same origin as like a decorative object that often was exchanged between, you know, sort of like members of the aristocracy. This included even like commissioning like toy soldiers. The history of toy soldiers has that same sort of like noble people would make small sets of soldiers based on their families and the history of their family crests and colors and they would exchange these boxes of these soldiers and then they would display them in each other's homes. Like that's, and then it's sort of, we, as we understand it, it increasingly moves away from that towards like this idea of a childhood plaything. And now it's sort of in a space where it's kind of both, but the, the problem with sort of returning to the idea of the toy as an adult collectible is that there's still such a huge component of the culture that regards these things as a thing for children that these collectors become infantilized in popular culture as well, right? Like, um, I am of the mind that when you make a definition in and around an object that is made of plastic, if you want to call it a toy, it's a toy. If you don't want to call it a toy, it's probably still a toy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right like if you insist that your work if you're working in something that is recognizable as something like a vintage kenner star wars action figure and you're sort of making the assertion that this isn't a toy i think that's an assertion that doesn't hold up under any kind of scrutiny well how did you make it well i chopped up a toy and then i copied the toy in different parts of the toy and i did this along the way and i put it in uh, in a form that has a plastic blister on it with a card back that is how people regard these things is when they're selling them and this is what they look like during their retail shelf life but I'm doing a different kind of like sort of critique on that form and even even if it's something beyond that original notion of a childhood plaything and a toy you are working so far within the form within the cultural form of the action figure that even if it's not um posable and not meant to be taken out of the package everything else about it you are using how can you how can you create an object that has all the cultural signifiers of something like a toy or an action figure and then somehow claim along the way that you have removed the toy or the action figuriness from it in spite of the fact that everything you've done when it comes together at the end still looks like one of those things hmm. um that's good right um and so I get it. We want to say this isn't for kids. This is an art form. But guess what? Art and toy are not mutually exclusive phenomenon. You can work within something that is both art and a toy with no problem at all. There's no shame. Like, I think one of the other things, too, again, if toys are objects that, like 
if toys as desired objects in contemporary culture, even by adults, if those collectors are somehow infantilized by the larger hegemonic regimes of the culture, people who are interested in making this shit are going to try to find a way to do the work that they view as being further legitimizing this form, which means probably stepping away from the terminology of toy. Um, that makes sense to me, but it's, you can't, like, <laughs> You know, outrun it as much as you try to outrun that. You're never going to be able to, I think. And so one of the shifts that we see with someone like Super 7, for example, is that it says not a toy adult collectible. And this has everything to do with the, le the legal framework around toys and safety laws uh, for the consumption of those objects for children, right? Okay. Everything has to... Everything has to be tested vis-a-vis -vis consumer safety standards. They need to make sure that they're safe for children, as we all know, and we talked about that, like the Battlestar Galactica toys from the 70s that shot little missiles past safety standards, but then a child choked and died, which meant for most of the 1980s, you did not have devices that fired things that had spring-loaded things. It's the reason that rocket firing Boba Fett got, became... Uh, red rocket glued in place in the figure Boba Fett, like, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And so, so it has more to do with the terminology. One of the things that because of what we do, I think, is we, we adopt so much of our terminology from the industry, because that's generally where we locate those objects, right? Like these are made by like large scale, like multinational corporations they are distributed around the world. Um, even the smaller scale companies are still like fairly big by comparison to any sort of individual like indie toy maker. Um, and so we're adopting that terminology. And so by calling it not a toy, you're sort of adopting some of that, some of that like safety terminology more, I think, than any sort of discursive assertion that this is like decidedly not a toy or decidedly more art like you know, it can be, it can be all those things. Super seven is making toys. The reason they put that on their package is a legal disclaimer. So they can't get sued because they haven't subjected all of their figures to the same consumer safety standards for children, because they are making objects specifically for adults to collect and interact with, um, hmm. which allows them to circumvent an entire sort of bureaucratic apparatus that would you know, God knows how like much longer any development cycle would be if you were doing that, if you want to respond quickly and make things, you know. But do, so, yeah. So the question I think is, what do we gain or lose from moving, from trying to move away from the toy idea and move towards art? What are we gaining and losing there? And again, I don't think those things are on a slider where one side is toy and the other side is art, right? Like yeah, I don't, kind of I don't view it that way. Yeah. Yeah. They kind of, I feel like they're, they're like on parallel tracks, you know, it's like they're moving, you know, I think that both of these things can be discussed and held the idea of both, both phenomena can be held in our minds simultaneously. And these things can move forward together because I don't see specifically because of the origins and the legacy of the the kind of work that like like any art toy maker or designer toy maker is doing is they're still relying on the material and aesthetic conditions of toys themselves right like a sofubi is nothing if not a soft vinyl sculpture that comes from the history and legacy of a particular toy making practice in japan for example 
um, an action, you know, uh, someone selling an, uh, a bootleg resin figure, like you on a card or even in a bag, like you hold that up and it is still recognizable as like a particular kind of like style of action figure from a particular era, right? Like, you know, and it's one of the things I find super interesting is that like the contemporary like collecting market for contemporary action figures is six inch scale well outside of the that that four inch scale that so many bootleg toy makers are working in. Right, which puts the work kind of in that retro nostalgic thing too, because we're dealing with a form of figure that's not even the dominant form of the figure anymore. In that yeah. Way. So yeah, yeah. I just again, I just don't feel how I don't know how useful toys and or art become as a conversation when you sort of place them at opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, I don't think it works. Yeah, because there's so much. Because both because there's so much artistry in a lot of these objects. And there's so much, like, I mean, failing to have any other term, toyeticness. Yeah. Um, you know, again, which is an industrial term that uh, Bernie Loomis, is it Bernie Loomis at Kenner? I think so, uh, coined in and around the Star Wars era. But it's it's so toy-like, you know, that how do you, how do you separate that out? Like, I just don't see a way. I don't see a way that it's useful because it kind of makes you look silly as an artist in the eyes of other people too, being like, what do you mean that's not a toy? Like it bears all of the signifiers that like people have understood for 40 plus years as being a toy, mm -hmm. right? Is it made of plastic? Yes. Is it posable? Yeah. Yes and or no. Is it like carded and has some sort of artwork that is to, supposed to entice me? Yes. And then it becomes more than a simple action figure or mo more than a toy because of the relationship um, between the object on the card and the card itself, the card art itself, right? The meta conversation that happens between the figure and the objects um, that some, you know, some people, some artists use to great effect and others, and others less so, but, but that relationship becomes like super critical and interesting. And then there, then of course, you know, and as I say this, I'm also, you know, like thinking about this in terms of there are a great deal of artists who choose not to worry about backers or packaging. And I'm not saying that that makes their work any less interesting or any less artistic. They're just exploring the forum in a different way. Um, you know, that I'm talking about the one specific path, which is, which is the carded figure, but there are so many others. And that's the interesting thing about this community is how many people are bringing their own sort of ideas there um, and playing around within that space, both in terms of like the material and the aesthetics and that sort of that meta conversation. Yeah, it seems like um, we've attributed the idea of a toy to playability because we, like when I was a kid, I had a couple of toys that I would play with and they were toys, like put your toys away. But now, <laughs> I want someone to hand my uh, hand a kid one of my toys. It's going to be the most boring like plaything they've ever had, but also not made for that. And I think we attribute playability to what a toy is and toy isn't. Yeah, and I think that playability or that idea of quote unquote finger food would be another industrial term that they would use, right? Like the things that you get in there with your fingers when you're playing with it. Um, yeah. 
I think that's part of the legacy of the very same era, because like the like Bernie Loomis's term toyetic, which would translate as something that, oh, if we took that concept and put it into a toy, it would be a very playable toy, is the very nature of the term toyetic. Um, you know, he called Star Wars a very toyetic line, and then they would evaluate brand incoming brands and licenses and whether or not they were going to work and do like these licensed works on like gauging it on its toyetic sort of nature is this you know um so playability certainly right and you know there but this is the interesting thing is that like there are play is an ambiguous is an ambiguous term and phenomena as art or as toy is like these are these are all of these all three of these are phenomena that have been with humankind's like kind of from the beginning, right? That are amorphous and shift and change over time. And like my my background in video game studies, for example, so I'm pretty well versed in like play theory. Um, and artists are playing with ideas with these toys as they're making them in the same and not dissimilar ways by which kids would be playing with toys as they're like playing with toys. Um, there was kind of a like an open-ended kind of free-form connection to the to to the imagination in where things unfold sort of freely in both of those circumstances, um, right? When you're exploring an idea as an artist, you're kind of playing around with. I, we use the terminology like a mom of playing around with a thing right now, um, and so we can still connect to play, but maybe it's just not the kind of play that's on the back end but the play is on the front end right mm, um yeah. in terms of like when it's made and then there's this whole other there's this whole other uh side to this that um that i've been thinking about through one of my phd committee members and he was talking about the idea of the ways in which adults display their toys is sort of the adult version of play with playing with them like curating your collection and displaying it becomes another mode of play. Uh, toy photography, which has become an increasing, uh, increasingly popular phenomenon is digital photographic technology has gotten more accessible, is like another way in which adults are playing with toys, literally be going back to the sandbox in some cases and playing with their toys, but with a very sort of kind of like predetermined output, which is like, interesting photographs of these things in action right yeah which is kind of a, like this idea of like you're sort of chasing down that idea of childhood play and trying to document it and then share it you know um, so there's that as well uh, that i think we can connect to that well there we go so like think about let's let's use an example of a friend and colleague um you know, who deserves a shout out for the way that he plays with his toys and his chicken burger disco. Oh my gosh. He he right? deserves the most amounts of shout out every time I do anything. Yeah. And he will, uh, he will humbly refuse the compliment until you tell him to shut up and take the compliment. So uh, CBD, take the compliment, please. But the way in which he plays with his toys connects to this idea of what we're like, the way that he can connect these kinds of ideas through doing these sort of parody commercials, you know, he's he's kind of reconnecting objects that maybe people were asserting were art and then finding ways to play with them 
in this very kind of like quirky and fun and funny and you know satirical way. Um, and I think he's a really good example of a toy maker who has embraced the fact that these are toys and art and you know understanding that they're not mutually exclusive. And I think that shines through in his work so clearly. Um, so that's something else as well. Um, it, even when you look at what's, did you see the Kickstarter that's being done by Tracker uh, for uh, Killer Bootlegs? Yes. Uh, tell me that commercial did not look like it was influenced by Chicken Burger Disco. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and, and to be fair, Killer has experience doing other like toy, like commercially stuff. Yeah. Like before, you know, before as well, like he did an MF Doom and Zarface video with like the figures that like he was involved with that with figures that he made and stuff like that. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, but again, if we're talking about spheres of influence in the culture of copying, there is a specific tone that comes through in some of CBD's uh, commercials that are like clearly drawing from the entire history of toy commercials from like the late seventies to like the mid nineties. Um, with the particular tone of the voiceovers and the way that he's sort of playing with the tropes of the, the children's like t TV commercial, like those spheres of influence do cast backwards. And so, you know, but yeah, I mean, it, it all, we all, we're all influencing each other. I think. Yeah. I um, think one thing that we didn't really get to talk about through the last five episodes, we talked about a lot, but we missed one and we got to talk about it now. The BLO. Yeah. Right. Yes. Um, I was hoping you were going to say Halix, but we can get to that too. Maybe if. Uh, Wait, what's that one? Time. That was the the Disney Star Wars themed synth rock band oh. thing I sent you. Yeah. Okay. We're yeah, gonna talk I was about like, how did I? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, how did I not mention this throughout this whole thing? Especially yeah. like several opportunities. The Disney episode, the Star Wars episode, the part where we talked about Jem and Barbie and the Rockers. I was like. Yeah, there's so many points in time where I could have brought this up, and uh, I for just simply forgot. Um, so we could, yeah, we could talk about the Barbie Liberation Organization because it's an interesting example of someone of a group of individuals making work. Um, you know, it's it's culture jamming work, uh, meaning that it's it's sort of it's playing on sort of the tropes and the the sort of mainstream ideas of culture and and jamming them up to show you how how absurd these dominant ideologies are um yeah. and so in the case of the barbie liberation organization for those who don't know the story this is 1990 i want to say 91 90, when Bar it's like between there and 93 uh in and around this time i think 91 between 91 and 93 i just don't have any notes because for, for this week's episode because i needed a break <laughs> um but i know the blo story pretty well so like um yeah, so Mattel releases a doll, an electronic talking Barbie doll. It's not the first talking Barbie they've ever made. They do pull string versions of her in the past with those little mini records and stuff that could say phrases. But the technology, electronics technology in the 90s gets to a point where toy makers can be like, oh, we can put little voice boxes in our dolls now. All little electronic ones that use, you know, sort of watch batteries or small excuse me, small amounts of power and we can, you know, put a little chip in there and, you know, someone, someone buys a teen talk Barbie and you push a button and each chip will have one of five random phrases that, you know, the logic gates will just like tick, 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 and it'll take you there and it'll just spit it out. So 
you know, kind of a, a bit of an innovation for Barbie electronic, you know, electronic voice boxes within, within dolls. And at the same time, so Mattel's doing this. And at the same time, Hasbro is sort of releasing a like anniversary collection of GI Joe 12 inch dolls again, but um, based on the characters from the real American hero line from the 1980s. So instead of those kind of blank slate soldier dolls that Hasbro started with, with GI Joe, these, these are like, like 12 inch versions of like, I think Duke was the main one. Yeah. And they also have a similar talking like voice box in them that allows Duke to say real combat phrases or some nonsense like that, on, you know, as advertised. And so you have these two gendered toys still playing out in that, like, you know, the doll for boys and the doll for girls. And um, there, a public backlash starts not long after Teen Talk Barbie comes out because she says things like math is hard. Um, I, I think that was one of the, I think that was the big one that really upset yeah. people. Um, and shopping. so this, this, yeah. this group of culture jammers comes along. And so these are artists who are doing sort of public facing kind of activist art. And what they, what they started doing was buying up both. We interrupted this broadcast of Toys on Top to bring you this. Aliens have landed, Earthling. I want lowbrow art and bootleg toys. Well, you come to the right place. Earth to Kentucky is a shop for folks who love vintage sci-fi, lowbrow, and art bootleg toys. Toys, toys, toys. They're located over there at 836 Main Street, Covington, Kentucky. Toys, toys. They carry original art, vintage action figures, designer bootleg toys, and toys, 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 and t-shirts. Designed exclusively for their store by some of their favorite artists. Thank you, Earthling. I enjoy Earth to Kentucky. I have all my favorite bootleg art toys. Toys. Hey, look at that over there! It's a spaceship! Yeah. I need to go now. Someone's filming me in my spaceship. Shop now. www.earthtokentucky.com. That's earth2kentucky.com. Or just land your spaceship when they're open. The Teen Talk Barbie dolls and the Talking Duke dolls, as well as other Talking G.I. Joe toys, including a Cobra Commander that had a backpack that had a voice box on it. Um, and they started, they would buy them, they would take them back to like a studio or workshop or wherever they were doing this work. Um, and they would swap the voice boxes between the GI Joe dolls and the Barbie dolls. And then they would put them back in the boxes and put them on store shelves. <laughs> and the idea here was to highlight the tropish and stereotypical nature of the phrasing in both, right? And I've talked about this, like, there's a reason I'm calling this G.I. Joe doll a doll, and it's not just its size. It's also because I talked about, when we when I talked about Hasbro and Mattel and the onset of G.I. Joe, the term action figure was a term created by Hasbro to sell dolls to boys. Um, it was to step away from the sort of cultural signifiers that, do that dolls were like, you know, effeminate objects for like the play for young girls. Like, and so, and then also you, so you have that side of it. And then, you know, so, so the action figure is this, is like a male heroic figure who has agency and autonomy and moves through the world because he takes action. G.I. Joe was America's man of action. <laughs> And then so Barbie was always like associated with the more sort of like, and this is a very sort of binary split, right? Like male, shunk, female, like hegemonic masculinity, hegemonic femininity. 
hegemonic femininity being like, you know, feminine, uh, interested in boys and pleasing boys. And everybody understands, I hope when I'm saying this stuff, this is not my take on it. This is sort of looking back at a particular moment in culture. Please understand that. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of domesticity, right? Like the, the home life, like that was a big difference between the idea between a doll and an act. Anyway, so, so the idea here is to upset gender norms in order to sort of like promote change. Um, so people would buy these toys. They would, these, it's a process. It was a practice called shop giving rather than shoplifting. So you're taking these things back into the store and just like secretly putting them back on the shelves. So teen talk Barbie's back in her box. She's back on a, on a Toys R Us shelf in 1992. You know, someone buys that for their daughter or grandchild or niece or whatever and they get it home and all of a sudden it's like go joe like let's do action combat things in the voice and then you know some some parent goes and buys some kid this talking duke doll and all of a sudden duke is saying ken is dreamy which is like my favorite like the 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 best part about this is that for me is that the queer readings that come out of these toys specifically because of this project are really really interesting to me um but um but yeah that was the project and so this project got a lot of attention very quickly and while there were certainly people who were interested in creating a moral of panic in and around the art project itself saying like is nothing sacred what about the traditional roles of men and women you know the sort of conservative groups were saying this but on the other side of this you had a whole bunch of like the progressive members of the population saying it is seriously problematic that these are the preoccupations of like, you know, uh, like a girl, like a young woman character in the late 20th century, that her preoccupations are still basically Victorian or pre-Victorian, right? Um, and so it spawned a change and they actually changed, like the work that the BLO did eventually led Mattel and the and the the protests and outrage that ensued in relation to Teen Talk Barbie and these like sort of problematic stereotypical phrases um, led to Barbie uh, or Mattel actually changing what Barbie said. Mm -hmm. They didn't recall the initial run, but they did change the voice boxes as they were being made. I think they like halted production and then did some like editing. With it. I, I think all they did was take out the problematic phrases and left, left the less problematic phrases that still probably could be viewed as problematic, like, you know, yeah. 30 years later. Yeah, math um, is hard. Let's go shopping. Got pulled. And there was a couple more. Yeah. Ken is dreamy. Yeah. yeah. Like, and now, now, you know, obviously, like, I mean, historically, this, like, honestly, I think that the, like, if we, if we, like, judge that particular moment in culture, from the particular moment in culture that we're in now, we can see, like, you can see how much has been done. Like, obviously there's still always work to do, but you can see how much culture has progressed in terms of gender and representation, right? Um, and it's not perfect. I'm not saying that the project will ever be over, but compared to the ways in which these things were being articulated then versus now, um, I think is like, you know, in part, due to some of the credit that the BLO did here. Like this was like really like that project had so much impact it ended up on an episode being nodded to in an episode of the Simpsons, which was the Malibu Stacy episode. 
um, you know, countless news broadcasts, uh, uh, and there's some really fun news bits and pieces there. I think they ended up, you know, being, uh, we ended up talking about them before. Oh, I actually lectured about it. That's what I was doing. And I gave a lecture and the BLO was one of the projects that I used this term. And I walked, I, you know, I played one of the original, if you go on YouTube for anyone who's listening and you just search Barbie liberation organization, you can see their like the basically the electronic press kits, which would have been on a VHS tape that they were mailing out to news organizations because the whole point of this project wasn't to boost their status as artists. It was to highlight that there was a, like a social issue that they felt needed to be remedied. And in fact, it was. So how often does that happen, right? Like there are no climate activists and artists in the world working today who have taken a project on and said, you know, and, and like shamed corporations for their inaction on climate and then actually had that kind of effect, um, you know, yeah. sadly. And what's interesting is the more I read on the BLO, because I think it's, you started me on this just torrent path of like, I need all the information I can get about it. They, they thought at one point it was between like two and 500 uh, like uh, Barbies and GI Joes that were taken, swapped and put back. And then yeah. there was one article that said there could be as few as only three because the documented cases are so low that no yeah. one really knows. And so it could have yeah. been like only three, but it was enough of a change and how they presented it that it just went crazy. It was, it, it did several things. Like it was a project designed to get attention to the issue more than ever the volume of what we consider to be like an artist multiple, right? Yeah. Um, it was always intended to get attention. Like the fact that they had already like, I think the first video that they sent out to, to broadcasters, like there hadn't even been a documented case yet. Right. Yeah. Or, or maybe just one or two, which are the one or two that we know about. So, yeah, I mean, that's also just expert manipulation of using the media machine in the era to help you, you know, distribute this message of transformation and, and sort of to, I mean, I think maybe the other issue is, is that we're in a culture now where media generates outrage, like basically like every minute and a half. Yeah. So people just don't pay attention to it in the same way. That's entirely possible. I feel like moral panics and outrages are in greater volume, in greater volumes, mm -hmm. <laughs> at greater volume, in greater volumes than ever before as well. Thank you, social media. Um, but, uh, but yeah. So, so for the moment that it that it that project existed in, um, I think it was a remarkable because it it literally like the change that they were calling for literally came about because of the project that they created in order to enact that change or at least try to catalyze it or influence it and that's pretty remarkable like yeah you know as yeah as far as an activist art project goes like like i said there's not many that you can consider to be a successful in terms of like actually seeing some of that change. I mean, there's still a whole problematics around like, well, Hasbro didn't change anything that the GI Joe said. Yeah. It's still, it's still rooted in, it's still rooted in like the idea of the American hero being the, a member of the military, which is still, as we know, something that is deeply embedded and probably 
never going to be decoupled from the American identity um, to a certain extent as well, right? So like, that's a bigger project. <laughs> Getting Barbie to say something that isn't like inane and stereotypical is one thing, but yeah, like that other stuff is just much, much bigger. Yeah, and this spurred on the next Toys on Tap shirt that's coming out. The BLO with like the instructions on how to do it is on the back. So I'm excited for that. What, what right. So that? that's the, yeah. So I didn't mention, but that's the other thing, right? Is that in addition to, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, you're in, good. in addition, in addition to releasing these tapes and like doing, like doing the, the, the swapping of the electronics, which I call gender circuit bending, even though they weren't really circuit bending, just to kind of play around with the term of gender bending here and that like sort of that activist sense. Um, they also released an instruction sheet on how people could do this themselves and encouraged other people to participate, which is why that number could be even higher if people actually took it on themselves to do it, right? The thing about doing an anonymous, a project where the artists are anonymous, where they're encouraging other artists to participate in this decentralized sort of operate in like, I love it, like operating as secret cells around America like yeah. people in their basements, like secretly doing this kind of work based on this instruction. It's like the anarchist cookbook, but for like gender swapping Barbie and GI Joe, this instruction sheet. So you are making shirts based on that, that instruction. Go pre-order the shirt. Go to the toys I want on tap one. Instagram. There you go. Uh, but then I you want should one. also see the Toys on Tap website. So just go there and pre-order. Excellent. Uh, honestly, man, um, you know, uh, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity, both to you and to everybody who listens to this show, um, in terms of the, the sort of the patience and the space that you've given me to tell these stories. And that like goes both for you and for the listeners who are mostly people that I assume that we know who are part of this, this community anyway. Um, I, I'm really grateful for that opportunity to get to just sort of, you know, spend like a good deal of time laying out why I think these things are so interesting and so important. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's great. It's basically like now I have, whenever I get stuck, the roadmap to my dissertation is like online and archived. There you go. <laughs> it's like, oh shit, what was I going to write about this thing? Hmm. Well, I, I talked about it on Toys on Top go back there so it's like okay. you know it, it just it, it really gave me an offer gave me an opportunity to sort of like kick in um and dive deep on a few things that really i hadn't even done the research for yet for example um like the stuff about like russia and the middle east and brazil that we talked about with bootlegs last week and, um i'm just very appreciative love it yeah. thank you so much yeah. my pleasure man thank you Toys on Tap. The next episode. It's great. It's amazing. You're going to want to listen to it. It's not right now, though. You're going to have to wait till the next episode to listen to it. Oh, when's that? The next one. Cool. Toys on Tap. The next one's going to be good, too. So stay tuned and, and, and listen to that. Toys on Tap. Awesome.